Okay, so somehow, and oftentimes I don't even remember how exactly it happened, we got off on a tangent last week. Um, yes, from Hebrews 4, we ended up going off into the subject. That, um, so I asked the question, does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? And I pointed to two passages in Scripture. The first one was John chapter 9, verse 31, which says... And this was when the, uh, the man who was blind, born blind, was healed by Christ, and then he was hauled in before the Sanhedrin uh, to be questioned. And in verse 30, the man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Verse 31, Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. And then the other passage that we looked at was Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. Verse 1, for context, says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now this is pronounced as a specific, this is a foray into judgment on unbelieving Israel. Okay? So on the basis of those two verses, I pose the question, does God hear sinners? Well, so let me, let me modify that a little bit. Because, because he is omniscient, he obviously hears what everybody says and what everybody thinks, both believers and unbelievers. The question is, more pr properly framed, does he answer the prayers of unbelievers? Right? So I have some, some Bible verses here that we can look at together. Let's start at Jeremiah chapter 14. Jeremiah chapter 14, again, the pronouncement of judgment on, on, uh, on the disobedient Jewish people. Wait till everybody gets there. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 11, Then the Lord said to me, this was God speaking to Jeremiah, Do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Okay? Now let's go to... Go ahead. Question? Yeah. Well, couldn't one argue that that means that they've just, obviously, sin so much against God that he just refuses to hear them now? And, and they're, 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 they're in a state of punishment? Well, they're functionally unbelievers. Well, no, I understand that, but I'm just saying, couldn't one argue? Well, one could argue that, but um, you know, you, you're having to, you're having to prove definitively. First of all, you have to somehow overcome the plain statement of John nine thirty one. So we're looking at that. What we're doing is, is we're looking at other Bible passages that kind of speak to that. See if that actually supports that okay. or not. All right. Okay. Yep. So that's what we're trying to do. So What's that? I'm not saying that I'm right, uh, although, and I'm not trying to be boastful or proudful, but I think I am right about this. I think the scripture is pretty clear about this, but, but I could be wrong. I'm not infallible, okay? And neither is John MacArthur and um, Stephen Armstrong and all the other guys who kind of come down the same way. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs chapter 28. 
verse 9. Now this goes even a step farther than not hearing, right? One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Okay? Now go to Proverbs 21. Verse 13. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. Now Psalm 66. Verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Those are the words of David, right? Okay. Now go to Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now go to James chapter 4. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And one more, 1 Peter chapter 3. This is just me surveying, literally took me 10 minutes to come up with these verses, literally 10 minutes. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse... 12. I like that ringtone, by the way. <laughs> For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. So now notice here that this, this, is a verse, this is a verse of contrast, right? It's contrast. So that's one side. Now he's going to give the contrast. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So you tell me. me it's pretty clear does the Lord hear of course he's omniscient he's unknowing he knows everything the question is is he declared in his word whether he will respond and when you look at when you look at those instances in the Old Testament when there was a response was that response was always a prayer of repentance and forgiveness and asking for forgiveness in every single instance. So the only prayer that God will hear from, as far as I'm concerned, the only prayer that God will hear from the unbeliever is the prayer that asks for forgiveness and demonstrates repentance. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Well, no, but what it is is it's used there as a euphemism, right? Not, not that literally they were all bloody hands, although, you know, <coughs> I, I mean, the nation of Israel had descended to the point where they were worse than the pagan nations around them. They were sacrificing their children. 
They were doing all kinds of stuff. So in that sense, it's true. But it's used as a euphemism to demonstrate that they were utterly corrupt and sinful. And God was dealing with them as unbelievers. Mm -hmm. And so he makes a statement there, I'm not interested in anything you have to say. Okay, now let's talk about it. Now let's bring in the wiggly situations. So Megan asked the question, you know, in the text thread, does that mean that when my kids pray at night, if they're, if they're not believers, that God will not hear and respond to their prayers? How do we deal with that? This is a difficult situation to deal with. I don't want to answer that question for you. I want you guys to think your way through it and kind of just, because this is a difficult one, and I usually get myself into a whole bunch of trouble well, around these kinds of things. If you go by the line of reasoning that you stated earlier, if they were predestined to yeah. eat before they made the decision, then their prayers are being heard. And you have a command as parents to teach our children the ways of the Lord, and one of those is to pray mm -hmm. to God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? Regardless of whether we know they're predestined or not, we teach them to pray to God. Oh, absolutely. But if they're not saved, they're never going to be saved, right? They're not supposed to. So let's talk about prayers to God, right? So 2,000 years of Roman Catholic children have been learned to pray to God, right? I mean... I was saying the rosary in the first grade, you know? So does that mean, all things being equal, that God was hearing my prayer when I recited the rosary as a five-year-old boy? Oh, really? Oh, here we go. Not according to the Torah, according to the rabbinical traditions, but not according to the Torah. So, so this is where we get into these kinds of, we get into this sticky wicket. Okay. So Megan is feeling very uneasy right now. She's stressing, I can tell. <laughs> okay. All right. So I think there is a potentially specific instance in the confines of a Christian home. Okay? And I'll tell you where I think that lie. We can... We can catch a hint of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Why? Verses 14, 15, and 16 answer that question. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Here it comes. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. You feel better? Yes. <laughs> That's not guaranteeing no, that they're going to be saved. They're going to be believers. Yeah. But there's a special blessing mm -hmm. of being raised in a in a Christian home, right? And so 
set apart there doesn't mean set apart into being a believer. Just because you're a child raised in a Christian home, it automatically makes you a believer. No, that's, that's not what it's saying. But what it does is it exposes you to the ways of God and in a very real way shields you from the ways of the world that even if that child never comes to a believer, there's still a great benefit to them of being raised in that home. That's the best that I can do to answer the question. But I think the scripture is pretty clear on this issue that God does not hear or does not respond to the prayers of unbelievers, that his ears are closed to them. The only prayer that he will respond to is the one that is uh, a prayer of confession, repentance, and asking for, for forgiveness, and asking to receive the Messiah as Lord and Savior. I think that's pretty clear. You know, I've, I looked at, you know, I pulled the internet and looked at, oh, the, well, the groups that say, yeah, he does, and it's like, they kept pointing to people in the Old Testament who eventually became, easily became believers, you know? And so you, you can't count that, right? Because by that standard, we were all unbelievers, right? And obviously, when we prayed, asked for forgiveness, that's the prayer that we can definitively say that God heard. You can't definitively say if God heard any prayer before that or responded to any prayer before that, right? But even then, because don't forget, the only reason why you are a believer now is because God appointed you to be a believer before the foundation of the world. So he already always had a special plan and set in motion for you. You were always a special object of his attention, right? Because it says in Hebrews chapter 1, that angels are what? Ministering spirits sent to minister to those who have salvation? No, inherit salvation, which means those angels were at work in your life before you came to salvation. Watching and guiding and directing and all of those things. Okay? Right? Because, you know, my, I mean, I look at my life, I should not be alive. <laughs> so we, what we used to do, so I lived in Medford, and we lived not far from the Boston and Maine express line, literally three, bro three blocks from our house. So what we used to do as second and third grade boys is we would go up to the, to the train track, and first we, we did it easy. We just started laying coins on the train track to see what would happen to them when the train went over. Then we got a little bit more brazen and decided we would stand in the middle of the track and see who could stay on the track the longest as the, yeah, with the, be with the, with the train coming at you at 60 miles an hour. We used to do that. <laughs> we stopped doing it when my friend stayed on so long that the jet that the air blast actually knocked him 10 feet off of the track. Wow. He stayed on that long that when, and that was the end of it when we stopped doing that. Then we started doing other stupid things, <laughs> you know? But so I should not be here, you know? My involvement with the occult, I should not be here, you know? I mean, I had two widow makers in one night. I should not be here. The heart attacks that I had, they're called widow makers for a specific reason. I should not be here, yet I'm still here, right? And so, so and, and you all have your own stories as to why that's true. And you all, you know, you all have your own bad things that you went through that God preserved you through. And <laughs> I got news for you. It ain't over yet. Amen. It ain't over yet. Because uh, the tests do get harder the more you 
advance in your walk with the Lord. They do get harder. But they also draw you closer to God and they draw the crap that's buried down deep within us to the surface that we don't even know that it's there and we see it and say, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. Amen. That's part of the process, right? Okay, so um, you, you can't, you can't use those kinds of arguments pointing to people in the Old Testament who clearly became believers because God has had a special mark on their lives from before the foundation of the world. Right? Okay. Any other questions or comments on that? Okay. Then let's jump into the text and see if we can clear some of these verses in Hebrews chapter 5. So... We hit the transition. Well, let's look at the notes. Let me read from the notes a little bit. So we covered these verses last week, 14 through 16, and these were the transitional verses. So, so these verses transition the author from talking about the superiority of Christ to Moses to now he talks about the superiority of Christ to the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood. Right, And so we, we talked a little bit about this last week. We talked about what was the function of a priest. The function of a priest was twofold. The priest was to represent man to God, but the role of the priest was also to represent God to man. So it's a twofold function. Okay, so uh, <coughs> I'll just read those verses. Uh, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the discourse here transitions from the superiority of Christ to Moses, to that of the priesthood of the Messiah, to that of Aaron. Now, what follows in verses 1 through 4 are the general qualifications of what was required to be appointed a priest under the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. So Hebrews 5.1 to 4 says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes dishonor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron one. Okay, so the Hebrew word for priest here is the name Cohen. Cohen, right? We know that's a that's a remains a Jewish name to this day, right? Cohen or Levi, Levenstein, some of those names. So th those are the only names that can be traced back to the priesthood today. As a general rule, the purpose of the priest was to be a representative of God to men and men to God. They intercede before God on behalf of sinful men, but they are also to represent the holiness of God to sinful men. While there were many priests in Israel, there was only one high priest. One man was set apart to this office, and he was to officiate over a one-time atonement once a year. As he represents men before God, he must be a human being, could not be an angel or a spirit. He must offer sacrifices and gifts before God as a representative of human, humankind. Those sacrifices and offerings had to be offered in the exact way prescribed by the law. He had to perform the sacrifice. He had to take the blood into the tabernacle. He had to take it into the Holy of Holies. There was no worship or sacrifices or offerings without that priest. He was, oh, I'm sorry. He was the means to which access was granted to God under the law. These acts of worship were only acceptable to God because God himself recognized and established the office of high priest. God was only willing to accept worship 
through his intercession. Okay, so what have we learned so far about the office of priesthood? One, that the priest, the, who, the priesthood or the priest was appointed by God. The priest was appointed by God. Man could not appoint himself to the office of priesthood. God had to appoint him to appointed him to the priesthood. In the case of the Levitical and the Aaronic priesthood, it was originally designed to be a lifetime appointment. So the man who was appointed to high priest would be high priest until he died. And then according to the to the to the to the method that God established upon his death, his son would would become high priest. So the high priest had to be a man because he had to be able to represent mankind to God. And he had to represent man to God in the exact way that was prescribed by God. So the whole thing was only effectual. First of all, there was no other way to approach God. It was only through the high priest and the sacrificial system. So, so everything has to be done the way God prescribed it. If there was any deviation from the way God prescribed it, that, that worship was not acceptable to God. He wouldn't accept it. Okay, all right. Going over on page two. God sets the rules for how we may draw near to him God has declared that we, he will accept our worship and acknowledge our request for forgiveness only through the work of a high priest. That, that hasn't changed. That's not changed. The only thing that's changed is what, what the Jews once knew and forgot and that many Christians today don't know that there was always a priesthood that was above and beyond the priesthood of Levi and Aaron, right? And that's what the author is going to start to get into, but he has to stop, and he has to bring the third major warning to the Hebrews because they weren't ready for it. So he has to stop, rebuke them before he can move on and explain to them how there was, there exists this priesthood that goes all the way back to Adam. Adam was the first one in this priesthood line. And it functioned in the same way. The, the, so Adam was in the line of this priesthood until he died. And then one of his descendants took over the priesthood. And the priesthood is carried forward all the way to Christ. And Christ is the final priest in this, in this line of succession. Well, he wants to get into that. And he's going to get into it, but he has to stop because the Hebrews had gotten lazy in their study of the scriptures and they weren't ready to understand what the author was going to bring to them. He, it was going to be difficult for him to do so. Okay. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself, but let's continue. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Now this is going, this is still referring to the Aaronic priesthood here. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. Before he could go in and offer sacrifice for the sins of the people, he had to first offer sacrifice for his own sin. Okay. As a man, the high priest has valuable perspective when representing man. The high priest could deal gently with the ignorant and misguided people of Israel. Now those words, that word ignorant is not meant to be an insult, but it conveys a lack of knowledge. And the high priest was highly schooled in the word and in the service of God. Again, the second word there, misguided, is not meant as an insult, but it speaks to those who have wandered from the truth into deception. So the high priest was to act as a shepherd to bring back those who had wandered from the truth. And his personal experience with sin gave him the capacity and sympathy for others who sinned. But as I just said, before he could offer 
of sacrifices for the sins of the people, he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins. And as I also said, the office of high priest was to be a lifetime appointment. Okay, so the author now, after basically going, going through the basic qualifications that were set forth by God, as far as the Levitical Aaronic priesthood are concerned, now he ratchets it up and compares it and uses it to take us higher now to the priesthood of Christ. He's part of another priesthood, okay? Okay, so Jesus is a superior high... Uh, maybe you can pass these. Someone can pass these to Pastor Roman so we can follow along. We'll look at that last copy. Um, we are on page two. Okay. We'll wait for uh, Pastor Roman to get there. Page two, main point three. Okay, so now reading on from verses 5 to 11, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. Remember? Remember what we read as the first qualification uh, for the priesthood of, of, uh, of Levi and Aaron? That man did not, he could not appropriate that office for himself, right? Reading back in um, verse 4, of, of five, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he was called by God just as Aaron was. Okay? So, so also Christ did not glorify himself to be, become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, this is this mysterious priesthood here that goes all the way back to Adam, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, here's the thing. Look at verse 11. Of whom we have much to say. The whom there is not Jesus, but it's talking about the priesthood of Melchizedek. We have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he has to stop now and hear, as I said, comes the third primary warning. They had gotten lazy in the faith. As we'll see, they should have been teachers of the word by now, but they, they, were, they had fallen to a place, and I, I don't want to kind of steal my thunder from next week, where they needed to be given baby food again. Because the reality is, is there's no such thing. I've said it from the pulpit a million times. I know Pastor Roman has said it from the pulpit a million times. There's no such thing as being static in the faith. You're either moving forward or you're sliding backward. There's no treading water. All right. So now let me just kind of break down what is said in these verses and um, discuss a couple of points in there. So the priesthood of Christ is far superior to that of the law. So in these verses are quoted... Psalm 2, 7, where it says, I will declare the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that is a specific term that actually relates to genealogical descent. So what God is saying there to the Messiah is that there is, a, there is an identity of nature. Right? So, so that he's very God. The priesthood of Melchizedek was prior to and higher that of, than that of the law. Like the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek was passed from father to son only upon the death of the prior office holder. The order of Melchizedek, so that word order is not to be understood like the Benedictine order or the, you know, the Jesuit order, but it's talking about a line of succession. 
the succession of Melchizedek. So that's what that's saying. Um, since Jesus, and so since Jesus does not die and is eternal, he is eternally the last high priest in the succession of the Melchizedekian priests. Christ, as the eternal Melchizedekian high priest, is appointed by God to represent the elect before God. But here are some terms that are interesting to discuss. When it says there that, that Christ, as our high priest, as the last in the succession of the Melchizedekian priesthood, had to learn obedience through suffering, what does that even mean? Because he's God, right? So what does that mean? How, how can that be that Christ had to learn obedience through the things which he suffered? These are like three-word phrases that are in the Bible, but they're like really profound. And I think they're profound because God wants us to stop and wrestle and consider this, right? So let me ask you a question let kinda, to kind of seed the discussion a little bit. So Christ, in his earthly ministry, performed... There were five specific messianic miracles that were identified in the Old Testament that would point to the Messiah, right? One of them, and you'll remember this one, this one, you sh this, you'll remember this one um, clearly, was that he was able to cast a demon out of a mute child. Why? Because the specific way that God ordained that exorcism should take place, because God did, there were Jewish exorcists, there, so they've been around. God has given that ability to individuals through time as, a, as just a, something of general grace, right? That, and you see this, Jesus used this when he addresses the, the, the uh, Gadarene. What does he do? What does he say? What is your name? But you see, that could not be done with a mute, with a mute boy. That's why his disciples were unable to cast that demon out, right? So he did many things like that, right? He, another one was to heal a leper. Never had such a thing taken place in Israel that a leper was healed. But Jesus healed lepers. So let me ask you a question. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and he performed all of these miracles. How did he perform them? How did he perform them? Well, he's God. He can perform them. Of course he can perform them. All the miracles that Christ wrought during his earthly ministry were wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit. So everything that Christ did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that that's what Philippians 2 is kind of telling us, that he emptied himself. And the miracles that he wrought, he wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why, right, eventually the Jews would commit what? The unpardonable sin, because they would attribute the works that Jesus was doing to the devil. So in that sense, in a very real sense, Christ in his humanity learned what it was like to be hungry, to be sad, to have anxiety, to all of those things. So in, in, in his humanity, in his humanity, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of temptation, he learned obedience. In spite of those things, so now, as our high priest, he can sympathize with us when we are undergoing those things. 
and failing and falling. But in a very real way, he also stands as our model as well, right? Just as he persevered, well, because he's God, uh, he persevered through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that lives in you and me now. Granted, we're nowhere near the perfection. You know, there's a, a, a world of difference there because Christ's flesh was not corrupted by sin. Ours is, right? There's a world of difference, but it's the same spirit that dwells within us. It's the same spirit that he wrought all his miracles by. But in his humanity, in a way that I don't, I've never been able to explain and I've never heard anyone or read anyone give an adequate explanation. There was something in humanity that required him to learn these things. I mean, think of it. I mean, okay, so Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. That means that Jesus came out of the womb potty trained. <laughs> I mean, can you just imagine that, all right? Imagine being Mary and Mary knowing who this kid is and cleaning him, you know, after he makes a mess. You know, if you've been a parent, you've cleaned that and you're like, yeah, that's not on my top 10 list of things to do, <laughs> you know? But imagine if, you know, this is God's son, this is God here that I'm, you know, cleaning. I mean, well, I think we need to think about things in, in terms of that, right? So in a very, so Christ was really human and he, he went through and experienced everything that humanity experiences yet never succumbing to the wickedness of the flesh, A, because his body was not corrupted by sin, but B, he persevered through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the same thing is true for us. Yes? I was just going to say, your point, though, is you're living in those chapters. Like there are definitely yes. maps that don't you, pack that with I know. It's like you can't really wrap your head around that. The only way to wrap your head around it is by looking at that passage in Philippians chapter 2 in a little different way. That in a very real way, though he was God, his divinity did not shine forth in his humanity. It expressed itself through the Holy Spirit. That's the only way I can even begin to wrap my head around that. And this is our high priest, and <coughs> it's following in accordance with God. So that's as close as I can come to explaining that verse, learned obedience through suffering, you know, and, and those verses like that, grew in wisdom and stature, you know, all of those things. I mean, unless you want to go off and you read some really crazy stuff in the Apocrypha about Jesus, you know, like he fashioned clay pigeons and then brought them to life, you know, that kind of weird stuff. And Another little boy took his ball, and so he, he struck him with death. And you find this kind of stuff in the Apocrypha. No, you do. You find it in there. All right. Um, let's see if we can finish this up. So having been perfected through that suffering, that resulted in obedience. He is the ground zero of eternal salvation for the elect. He is able to have compassion and sympathize with our weaknesses because he experienced all the same struggles and turmoil that are part of the human condition in this sin-cursed world, and he represents God before man. Okay, so that's the second part of the priesthood, right? So the priesthood was to represent man before God and represent God before man. We talked about this last week. So now, we, let's close with 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So now the believer is a priest. So as a priest, what are you? We kind of discussed this last week. What are you to do? You are to represent man to God. Well, who do we represent? This really 
you know, when I, when I saw this, this kind of like, yeah, I don't think I've had this right. That I'm not called to represent other believers to God because they're a priest. I'm called to represent, who did the priesthood in Israel represent before God? Those who are not priests, right? So in a very real way, I'm called to represent unbelievers to God in a very real way, to be a mediator, right? Not in the way Christ the Lord is, but to function as, not as a high priest, right? But let's say as a lower Levite priest, right? Which means what? What is the, in order for me to accurately do that, what do I have to do? I have to be able to guide those, if we turn back to page two, the high priest could deal gently with the ignorant and misguided people of Israel. Ignorant, not those, those who have a lack of knowledge, right? Which means that we should be, and in fact, commanded to be highly schooled in the Word of God and in the service of God. Right? And misguided means to wander to those who have wandered from truth into deception. We are called to be this to the unbelievers around us. Now this puts a whole different calculus in the way that we deal with people around us, right? This puts a whole different calculus in the way that you would deal with someone that you know who may be a homosexual, who may be a transgender person, who may struggle with heroin addiction, who may, you know, all those things, right? Our first reaction is to what? Let's face it. Our first reaction is to judge them. You can't, that's not the role of the priest to judge. The role of the priest is to represent them before God. How would we do that? How would be a great way to do that, to represent someone who is not a believer, who is struggling? So we come back to the question now, right? So if God, if indeed we're right, and God does not hear the prayer of unbelievers, but he might hear your prayer, right? So we are to represent man to God. But there's an inverse relationship there too. We're also rep to represent God to man, which means what? We've got to be godly. We can't be hypocrites. We can't, you know, we can't fall to the things of the world because they're like, well, if it's not working for you, what makes you think it's going to work for me? You know? So there's that twofold relationship there. So clearly, I think we need to take this more seriously. Okay, and one more verse there. Hebrews chapter, I think I jump ahead a little bit, yeah. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, this is what I said a few minutes ago, naturally flows into Hebrews 7, 1. So take your Bible for a moment, and I want you to see this. Read Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, uh, Hebrews 5, verses 9 and 10. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now jump right over to 7.1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, you see how it jumps? So he stops. So... What comes in Hebrews chapter 6 is kind of like a parenthetical where he has to stop. Because he's like, you know what? You guys are really irritating me because I really want to get into this with you, but you haven't been paying attention to your Bibles, and I'm going to stop now and call you up on the carpet before we continue in this. Right? Before he actually gets it, because he does pick up the discourse because the discourse does become quite involved. He goes deep. 
into Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7, and then he ties it all in to Christ in Hebrews chapter 8. Right? Okay. So that's all I have for you tonight. So as Forrest Gump would say, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> but, so you know, we read and we come across these verses, and, you know, I'm no different than anyone else. You know, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And we read it and we go, hmm, and then we move on. Right? But it's like there's a universe of, of exploration in, the, in those words. How can that be? Right? So it starts by asking the question, how can that be? God, how can that be? And you know what? Um, God is your father. He will explain that to you, exactly how that can be. Can I read a verse? Uh, sure. The verse that's guiding me is Christ's suffering. And I'm just thinking, and it just first came to mind, it's uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 11, and uh, verse 32. And Jesus therefore saw her sleeping, and the Jews also sleeping, which came with her, Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Not to mention, you know, the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, who's he was in so much anxiety they was literally sweating blood. That's a a bona fide medical condition. You know that you're under such stress and anxiety, your body's under such stress and anxiety that the capillaries rupture, and you start oozing blood out of your pores. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he was healed. Correction. But no one was healed in accordance with the method specified by the Levitical law. Right. And there was a specific, there was a specific process that he had to go through in order to be cleansed. Right? Washings and burning clothes and presenting himself to the priesthood and yes. 